Dotnet Rocks, episode 1386, with guests Michelle Rubustamante, Dan Wallin, and Rick Van Russelt. Recorded Wednesday, October 26th, 2016. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. And uh, this is a show that we're going to start playing in just a minute here. But Richard and I came on um, before we hear it, just to let you know sort of about a, well, thing that happened. What happened, Richard? <laughs> okay, you're going to make me say it because it's my fault. Okay, fine. Be like that. Uh, it's been my fault plenty of times, yes, bud. You, you, we've been doing, you and I have been doing this entirely too long, and sometimes we lose shows. In this case, we didn't lose it. Right. Uh, we were using my H6 digital recorder and using six channels on it or five channels on it, which means it consumes a lot of storage space, and yep. I did not clean up enough storage space beforehand to actually hold the whole recording. So what we realized after starting the recording and recording at the end of the show when the people were leaving and the applause had happened we turned around and the recorder was off yeah like, oh no so we only lost 15 minutes so it's not bad and the 15 minutes we lost weren't critical so i don't even think it was 15 minutes because i don't think we went the full hours i recall we were keeping people away from beer ah you're so right we th- we cut we literally cut off uh, the like the wrapping couple of comments right but okay. the, the heart of the show is there. The heart of the show is there, and it was a good show. Yeah. So, we thought, we can't throw this away. We want people to hear it. Exactly. But we wanted to explain what's going to happen in 45 minutes when it just sort of ends. So and we'll, com- we'll come back and talk about it, too. Yeah, we'll talk to you on the other side. Here's the show. Hey, Amsterdam! It's .NET Rocks! <laughs> Wow. Holy bitter ballin'. <laughs> <laughs> this is a beautiful room, too. It, it is a beautiful a lot room. A lot of woodwork. We're actually in Harlem, if you want to get technical. Yeah. yeah. Is, it, is it pronounced Harlem? Or Harlem. Is it Harlem. I don't try to do Dutch pronunciations. They just make fun of me. Yeah. yeah. So we'll get, get as close as we can. Okay. All right. Yeah, it's a beautiful place. Uh, we're in a theater. There's a couple people hanging out in the balcony. There's more in the loge, which I just like saying the word loge. Okay. Uh, and we're here at Dev Intersection. Congratulations. Thank you. This is year number two for you guys. Second in Europe, yeah. Yeah. And uh, good fun. It's uh, always a challenge to make new conferences, but we're enjoying ourselves. We have uh, an esteemed panel here. We're going to be talking about containers. But before we talk to them, we have this little matter of better know a framework. Awesome. Roll that crazy music. All right, buddy, what do you got? Oh, what I got. So I'm, you know, I like IoT. You guys mm-hmm. like IoT. Who this kind of like stuff. IOT? Who doesn't like good IoT? And also the whole measuring your body, the the medical stuff has swept like mania, right? Yeah. We want to know how much we're sleeping. We want to know our blood pressure. We want to know all this stuff. We're walking towards a home medical lab here because let's face it, at where I come from anyway, that stuff's expensive. Mm-hmm. So uh, there's this great, new and also expensive i mm. might add platform called uh and this is they're not an ad sponsor or anything like that i just found it but it's called my signals and my dash signals.com hmm. or because this is show 1386 you can go to 1386.pwop.me 
And uh, what this is is a development platform for medical devices and e-health applications. So it's a little box that has lots and lots of different sensors. And of course, it's all uh, basically uh, IoT. So you can use my signals to develop your e-health, web, Android, or iOS applications, or to even add your own sensors to build new medical devices. It allows you to measure more than 20 biometric parameters, such as pulse, breath rate, oxygen in blood, electrocardiogram signals, blood pressure, muscle electromyography signals, glucose levels, great for diabetics, galvanic skin response, lung capacity, snore waves, hmm. patient position, airflow and body scale parameters, which are weight, bone mass, body fat, muscle mass, body water, visceral fat, basal metabolic rate, and body mass index. And it starts at only 1,200 euros. A, a mere 1,200 euros. Which is the cost of one glucose test strip in America, I might add. <laughs> I just thought that was, that just tickled That's, my fancy. Well, and like you said, we're headed down this path of continuous instrumentation. There is another tool, another step in that path. I mean, I'm such a geek. How many of you, how many of you want to have a microscope at home and learn what, you know, different colds and stuff look like so that when you get sick, you cough on a slide and look at it and say, ah, I have streptococcus or something like that. Like that, you know, because you go to the doctor and they don't, well, okay, where I come from. You go to the doctor with a sniffle, and they're like, antibiotic, you know? So I'd like, I, and I always say, how do you know what it is? Don't you have a microscope around here? Can't you just look at it? No, we, don't, we wouldn't know what to do with that. So I think it's amazing. Yep. So there you go, my-signals.com. My Who's talking to us, buddy? Grabbed a comment off of show 1354, the one we did with Mr. Willeen back in September of 2016, where we talked about Angular 2, Core, and Docker. And this particular comment comes from Mark, who says, Great show, guys. Dan is such a cool dude and an excellent teacher and presenter. Always love listening to him. Me too. I like this guy. Yeah, I like him too. Yeah. <laughs> As a front-end dev starting out in C-Sharp and ASP.NET, I couldn't stop laughing at the CSS references. Even I have to refer to CSS tricks on a regular basis. As Dan mentioned, Flexbox is brilliant for responsive web layouts. Mm -hmm. To add another resource to the mix, here's a fantastic presentation by Zoe Gillenwater on Flexbox and what you can do with it. It includes a link to Vimeo, which I'll include in the show notes. Thanks again for the great podcast. Thanks, Mark. You made Dan's head grow even bigger. But that's uh, not going to stop me from sending you a .NET Rocks mug. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or via any of our social media because we publish every show to Google Plus and Facebook. And if you comment there and we read it on the show, we'll send you a mug. And you can follow us on Twitter. I'm at Carl Franklin. He's at Rich Campbell. Send us a tweet. Once in a while, we read them. I pretty much read all of them. But on once the in a while, I floss my cat with them. <laughs> okay. As you do. As you do. That's what they do in Canada. Okay. Uh, so we have an esteemed panel here talking about containers. Mr. Dan Walleen. Hi, Dan. Hi there. How you doing? Michelle LaRue Bustamante. Hello, Michelle. Hello. And Rick Van Russel. Yeah, it's a Dutch name. Yeah. Welcome. So Dan, I caught the last bit of your talk on Docker and containers here. I just walked in because you happened to be in the same room that I was speaking in twice today. Yeah. It's following me. Yeah, I know. Get that feeling. And, uh, I noticed that uh, just toward the end of it, like you were, you had this Docker thing set up so that every time you saved your app, that your code that you were working on, it rebuilt the container, relaunched it. Like when you saved it, right? not just like, you know, when you launched it or deployed it, but every time you hit control S, 
That's right. crazy. Yeah, it's uh, so Docker has these things called volumes, which you know, if you think about the two examples I gave in that talk, or you're writing to a log file, or uh, you know, have a database and you want to you know write somewhere. Well, when a container dies, everything dies in the <laughs> in the container. So you probably don't want to lose all that uh, data. So the way it works is you can set up these volumes, and for like production environments, you could write your log files and your database files to the the, what they call the host system. So we, as developers, we can leverage that to do what you just said and make it where, as I save my source code, it actually restarts. Like in my case, I had a, it's called .NET Watcher. It's an ASP.NET Core uh, little utility tool that Microsoft has that'll, it's basically like a file system Yeah, watcher. like a file system yeah, watcher. Yeah, and it just watches it. And then it restarts your Kestrel server and uh, restarts it and you're ready to go. So, because uh, otherwise, when I first started, when I didn't know about volumes, I'm uh, literally rebuilding the image, you know, taking down the container, recreating the container, and going, there's got to be a better way. Right. There is. Mm. <laughs> so, yeah. this, and this is basically continuous integration just at the development level then? Yeah, kind of. Yeah, I'm, I'm integrating my code directly into the container, uh, kind of live, if you will, mm -hmm. and it uh, really speeds it up, yeah. So, and maybe some, either of you guys can comment on this. It just seems to me that... While you know containers are very high tech and all this, what they really represent is automation and less work for all of us. And the things that normally were a regular routine part of our development cycle just sort of go away. It's magic. <laughs> um, I don't. I, I think that there's a lot of um, layers to this, just like the container image, right? So when you look at development cycle optimizations like the volume um, concept, I think that's, that's one piece of the flexibility that's available. But the other side in, you know, converse view would be the full stack perspective, which is when you're ready to go to production and you're really building, you know, you're sort of through your development cycle and you're ready to do promotion through the environments, you can build your full stack. You've got the container, it's got, you know, the base image, it's got whatever you've installed, Node or, or Go or .NET Core, and, and then you've got your lightweight, you know, um, uh, web server, so it's going to be Kestrel or Express, or if you're doing Java, it's going to be maybe Tomcat. Mm -hmm. um, but the point is, it's full stack. And it's full stack for a reason, because that gives you the isolation between uh, other containers that need to be deployed and the dependencies that might be imposed so that we would have to have Java on the host machine. I don't want to do that, right? I want to ship a container that has all its dependencies, right? and then it owns all of that. And then, you know, Obviously, at the point that you get to production, at that point, you can lose the, the volume concept and you can go to your real distributed store or your event sourcing store or whatever it is that you're doing in the production environment. But the key to the image is that all the dependencies around the software running are basically contained with a health check endpoint that's really solid so that it really informs what are my dependencies outside of the container as well, like a Redis cache or whatever that may be. And then you literally have an image that is immutable and that immutable image is now ready to promote through you know dev test uh, staging production by tagging and by 
pushing the other button, right? That, right. that handles that promotion process using like a run deck tool or something like that. So I think um, it's really powerful in the sense that there's all these development optimizations for day-to-day work that's really great. And then there's all these amazing ways you can leverage the sort of immutability for an immutable infrastructure and really predictable deployment sort of, uh, you know, end on, result. on this line of the different promotion levels then, what is the appropriate mechanism for switching between the different kinds of data sources that I have, you know, just sample data to work in my dev environment that I have maybe a little more formal data from my testing environment and staging environment before flipping to production data? Right. Am I somehow managing tagging as well to identify what data sets to use? So your compose file will have configuration um, environment variables potentially. Mm-hmm. And then can also actually, if you want to be really dynamic, use a console key value store, SD or Zookeeper for dynamic configuration. So it can go either way. Okay. But, you know, it's perfectly acceptable to have compose files, which is your task definition, to describe, you know, those environment variables and help you go through the environment. So the idea is that the image is immutable. Right. But your environment description, your task definition is the only thing that changes uh, as you promote. So... Yeah, and, I, and then I, that seems to speak to me very nicely on some of my tests I want to run on test data, but some of them I want to run on real data. You right. Know, as, as I want to be as real as possible as an automated tester. So You might need to mock a bit, right, yeah. internally, depending on how the application structure. But I, I still like this concept of immutability as much as possible and just setting some dynamic variables. Okay, hey, you're in a test mode now, right now versus a production mode. I really don't want to have separate builds. Right. Yeah. I'm picking in up what Michelle said. I really hate deploying to production. It's it's scary. And the old way was scary. You deploy to production, is it going to work? Is it not going to work? What's going to happen? Oh, no. This is going to be a long weekend. Right. So, But now it's better. You, you just have to make sure that the environment variables are okay and your data sources are okay, but the container is not going to change anymore. So you know that part will work. When it strikes me that this is the strength of this approach is by the time I'm actually deploying in production, I've pre- deployed this code a lot of times, right? I mean, every time you're saving, Dan, you're effectively doing a kind of deployment. Yeah. And every test lab run was a kind of deployment. Like it's all of a sudden the real deployment is really not that different than everything else I've been doing with my system up till now. Well, what's nice there is you can use humans and some tools, but like I'm using Docker Cloud uh, to integrate with Azure mm-hmm. and it can integrate with pretty much every major cloud provider, but I've only used it specifically with Azure. But you make, uh, it's, it's like uh, was just said, there's a, it's called a stack file, which mm-hmm. is basically a Docker Compose file. You put it up in this Docker Cloud scenario and then literally I can change that if I want to add services, remove services, environment variables, whatever, hit a little kind of, it's not quite as simple as hitting a redeploy button, but almost. And then, you know, boom, I have different containers up and running in uh, production now. So, so there's some plenty of systems that, uh, you know, Docker has or some of these other tools that were mentioned. Uh, I haven't used, like, I've heard of the others, but I haven't used those per se. And there's too many, right? Yeah, That's the other problem yeah. is that the Docker ecosystem. Yeah, and it's going really, really big. Yeah. Really big. And, and it becomes very hard, I think, for people to decide what should I use? And so I, I try to baseline on um, the, the the things that we know have been successful in production when we're working with enterprise customers. And then sometimes when you're sort of just on your own and you want to play, there's lots of interesting things you can do, you know, different types of networking you know, uh, compositions, sure. different types of tools for deployment, different types of tools around... Um, 
I don't know. Uh, I, I, the list goes on. Right, I guess. clustering, yeah. instrumentation, so forth. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, what, so yeah. how many different containers do you really need for a given application? Like, what is the granularity point? One thousand and two. <laughs> yes, the correct answer is more. Forty-two. More. Forty-two. <laughs> how did you miss that? Uh, how did I miss that? Jeez, that's the answer to everything. Yeah. Uh, it depends on the app. Nice. Good answer. Yeah, I mean it does. Uh, you know, just as an example for a simple blog. Uh, so my blog is running on containers with Azure and I use Docker Cloud to manage that. And I it have, clearly needed to be a microservice. Oh, uh, absolutely. Come on. I mean, <laughs> come on. It's a blog, you know. No, I mean, I only have three containers. So I have one for MariaDB, I have one for the WordPress, and I have one for Nginx for the front end, you know, reverse proxy. MariaDB is a sort of, you said it was a MySQL like MySQL variant. variant. I, I think it's the yeah. people that originally wrote MySQL. Who? Uh, and, uh, Oracle or somebody? They buy. own it now, yeah. Oracle? Yeah. Never heard of them. Yeah, well, no. the people that originally wrote it got upset, I guess, and uh, said, we're doing it our own way. Oracle? Everybody loves Oracle. I know, I know. So, oh. <laughs> Side side story. I'm actually in a bar, you know, uh, Dermot Dio, uh, my for friend from Ireland. Bar? Yes, I'm actually in a bar. And, my friend uh, went in a bar. Yeah, my friend went in a bar. So uh, <laughs> he's he's leaving. He's going to Florida. He's That's moving right. his pub, right? So we had this show of support for him. And there's a guy there who's a contractor, and he's telling me a story about how he actually helped to build Larry Ellison's house. Okay. And he goes. Man, that guy was a prick. (laughs) (laughs) And I said, really, that doesn't seem, you know. I don't know where that. I don't know why. Who would have thunk that? That's that's mean to say something like that about (laughs) Mr. Larry Ellison. (laughs) All right. Anyway, um, so this brings me back to your your database, your Mary DB. Marie, I think it is. Yeah, whatever. So uh, if that database container goes away, what happens to everything? Do you persist that outside the container somewhere? Is it yeah, more like so a cache? Yeah, so there's an example where I just use a volume, and it's actually uh-huh. stored on my VM. Got it. Uh, so that way I can drop the container and bring it back up. And I'm Oh, good. so it's essentially, um, um, yeah, so when you write to the local database, it's actually going to your... It's just a pointer to a pointer. from the container to the local host. Easy. Yeah, I mean, there's multiple ways you can do it. That's the probably least sophisticated way. Right. But come on, it's a blog. Yeah, it's and a I'm blog. Not, yeah, you know. Doesn't need a lot of throughput. And if you lost the host... If I lose the host, we hope I have a backup of the host. Gotcha. Uh, <laughs> and if I lose the backup, uh, I'm screwed. So but is this a In other words, everything has to everything. be clustered in the real world, yeah. but you don't have to face it right away. Yeah. Is this a common pattern you see, um, Michelle, when people are using containers that the data just persists somewhere out in data land outside the container? See, or now you're going to open the topic of where should my data go in the first yeah, place. Yeah, right. And, it's a good and, question. And, you know, when it's cache, if it's ephemeral, you could use a Redis cluster. So if you're deployed in Azure, you could use, you know, one of the options that is built in. Um, If you're in Amazon, you're going to use Elasticsearch um, and you're going to, or Elastic Cache, sorry. and. And, and that's, that's just one example, but anything I store in data has to be clustered if it's mm-hmm. real mission critical. And yep. a blog is a good example of, I, I don't want to put a bunch of extra effort and money and time. Well, it's more money. So as long as, <laughs> as long as you've got the backup, you just, oh, okay, I'm, blah, I'm down for a day. Let's just go rebuild Yeah, the there's a difference, you know, getting yeah. into the DR side. Oop, my IT right. hat came on. Yeah, it's, yeah. have I lost data? How long will I be down? Exactly. Right. And how so fast can you recover, yeah. right? Yeah. And so and you, I know how often Dan blo- 
post to his blog. So he can, not wait, that often he can wait a few days. He's <laughs> yeah, going to be okay. Not that often. As long as he doesn't lose data, he can afford to be down. He'll come back up Rick again. But there is but. one really, really important in th- thing about this, though, and that is when you design your services and you break it down, the monolith into the, the, you know, the microservice architecture, if you think too much about the data at first before the services and the and the boundaries of business domain and bounded context, you're going to get lost in the relational data aspects and you're going to be stuck and you're not going to know what to do. And, oh my God, I've got this relational data and then services, which is hub and spoke. And the answer is it's okay to go hub and spoke at first. If you're migrating, start building the middle service tier, still have some dependencies on relations. But the eventual idea is that you do have microservices that own their own data store, like we wanted in SOA. Mm -hmm. And that we're going to have to go to a more advanced architecture like event sourcing and eventual consistency uh, to break up the data. And then event that allows you to have whatever data store is right for that set of services can be. So if it's Redis for this one, because it's ephemeral and I can recreate it. Yep. And over here I can have an RDS or, or MySQL, Postgres or or SQL Server, you know, but it's an instance with some tables that are related. And then over here, I've got DocDB because this just forms well as a document and so on and so on. So you you get to decide and it doesn't matter. The services don't have to be the same. You can choose based on the query patterns and access patterns. And that's really important. Yeah, I think uh, most applications are a living thing. So most of the time you can notice Nah, this should be separated. So the micro architecture, it kind of grows on you. If you start up with a big application, then you think, oh, I'll split it up in two. And then oh, maybe this part has to be another different application and this part has to be split up. So right. it kind of grows on you. So Rick, you're a SharePoint guy. You, yep. you put SharePoint in containers? Yeah, the SharePoint world is, is changing now. I don't think you've heard it. I don't know if you heard it before. Uh, everything's changing in the SharePoint world. I'm a SharePoint guy, but yeah, we're all Office 365 guys. Office 365. So we have to bring our own hosting environment nowadays. So yeah. why not use containers? Why not use Docker? Yeah. Well, and you have a much more familiar web development model for SharePoint now, in yeah. the cloud at least. It's a little less arcane. Yeah, yeah. The, the days from dropping the DLL in the GAC are over yeah too bad yeah we can reminisce about them but they're over (laughs) well yeah i think we're all better off yeah yeah, yeah. it's it's better let's be very sure about that so and when we start playing with stuff like redis and so forth now we're just talking about effectively populating a cache to improve performance Mm -hmm. but the system is going to work pre-populated like you're going to be able to derive that data and and generate it you have to be because redis is not intended to be durable and reliable so but you do need some point of record. We, we have a Redis in production now a year. The data wasn't lost. Aren't you lucky? Yeah, we're lucky. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we, we built everything so we could repopulate the data at night. We take backups of it. Uh, now in Azure, you can even set it to take automatic backups. But in a year time, we were surprised. It still runs. Hmm. No data hmm. loss. So, so I'm going to give you one example that's really interesting. And that is I had a customer who, uh, if their cache were to go down for even a few minutes and they lost a shopping cart, there are hundreds of thousands of dollars in that shopping cart. Right. So guess what? That Redis shopping cart can't be Redis. Dangerous? It's, yeah. I mean, they would lose hundreds of thousands of dollars. So, and it's a true story. That's a heck so, of a shopping cart. So Larry most Ellison's. people, when they use Redis, it's ephemeral, it's a session. And maybe if on the off chance on that one point, 
point, point percent, something goes wrong, they're only going to lose, you know, like, okay, I, I guess I lost my session. And, and, and maybe it's not impactful to the business. Yeah. So you just start over. Sure. Yeah. Right. Hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. Guess what time it is now? Uh, I must be that happy time again. Yeah, it's time to ask a question. Mm-hmm. Did you hear the one about the uh, Docker developer that spontaneously combusted? No. Yeah, he couldn't contain himself. Uh. <laughs> hey, look, a whole room of groans. I know. Yeah. That's pretty good. Yeah. Dutch groans at that. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually time to give away a Music to Code by complete collection to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. Music to Code by, if you haven't heard, is a set of 25-minute Pomodoro-sized, quiet, and groovy instrumentals scientifically designed to promote focus. They'll get you into a state of flow and keep you there. And a lot of .NET Rocks guests and listeners are big fans, and they're being more productive every day with Music to Code By. And now you can download the entire 13-track collection for only 39 bucks. And yes, track 14 is coming soon. Wow. Yeah. And see what all the fuss is about. Go to musictocodeby.net. Well, all right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner is Adrian Ulander. Congratulations, Adrian. No golf claps, real claps. Real clap for you, Adrian. Yeah. And Adrian just won the Music to Code by Complete Collection just for being a member of the .NET Rocks fan club. And if you don't know what that is, go to .NET Rocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. In every show, we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree to one lucky member of the fan club, but you got to sign up to win. It's coming up. It's coming right up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we, this is a good time to join the fan club. We always get a surge yes. right around the this end of the, the year. This is the time. We'd like to ask our guests too. We'll start with you, Dan. If you had five grand to spend on technology today, what would you buy? You guys know I always struggle with this yes, question. Yes, I know. That's why we love asking Every you. freaking time. Me too. Thank you for saying yes. this. Uh, I'm pretty happy in life again. I'm, I'm content, <laughs> man. I don't need anything. You're, uh, you're in Arizona. You have no water. Yeah. I mean, you know, I got a pool, gonna, I got a pool in the backyard. And that's enough. all I need for water. Yeah. You're going to donate a few hundred raspberry pies to your local yeah, middle school. Yeah, there we go. We'll, uh, we'll donate. Uh, let's see. If I had to pick something, I'd probably go back. Because Carl, you know, I'm a, I'm a wannabe Carl Franklin. I love writing, recording music stuff. But oh, I don't I have time you were to say do podcast host. Though. Oh, I want to be that too, but you know, <laughs> not as much as the musician part. Carl's awesome. Uh, so I think I'd get whatever you would recommend as far as the cheapest studio gear I could get to be, you know, today's. You get a gear. decent recording rig for five grand. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Nice. So I think that's what I more get. about your machine actually that you're using. Yeah, because you do everything on the machine these cool. days. I think, I think I'd sound. go with that. Yeah, because yeah. I don't really need keyboards as much anymore. I can use my virtual stuff. Yeah, well, so. when that happens, when that day comes, you call me. I'll set you up. And I've already containerized all my drums. So <laughs> <laughs> I turned your you know, containers the, into the drums. The wife was yelling too much at the noise, so you know, you just containerize it. Yep. Ah, very good. <laughs> I think they the call d- that soundproofing. Yeah. Well. Okay. Five thousand dollars worth of soundproofing. <laughs> that worked, Michelle. I want a robot that brings me coffee all day. You nice. and my wife, too. And at too. 5 o'clock, I want it to bring me wine. Yeah, like, like so coffee, awesome. only And I'll different. just stay in my office and keep at it. It'll just keep arriving. Yeah. They're biggie, making biggie, a biggie, biggie. Hey, Michelle, here's your coffee, biggie, biggie. I want, to, I want it to have a programmable voice, so it could be like Sean Connery sometimes. Uh, there, you <laughs> so, uh, there you go. You know, That'd be cool. Right? Yeah. yeah. Would you like Merlot? 
<laughs> not bad. Not bad. Rick? Uh, I'm going to, I don't know, probably a HoloLens. Yeah. Holidays. Cool. Uh, HoloLens. HoloLens. Oh, HoloLens. Sell, HoloLens, yeah. They sell them now in Europe, so yeah. HoloLens, yeah. time to get my hands on one. Yeah, that's most of the money gone right there. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I got to tell you, though, the most fun you can have with your clothes on, HoloLens. Mm-hmm. And coming soon. I know we're in Amsterdam. I got a chuckle out of that one. No, nothing. <laughs> no. Don't like, make no, hooker jokes really. in Crickets. Amsterdam, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, so uh, Server 2016 shipped in September. Now we have Windows containers. Does anybody care? They should. <laughs> okay, do any of you care? Well, should. <laughs> why should they, Dan? Why should we care? Well, uh, you know, one of the really cool things, we've never had the ability to isolate as well on without like virtual machines. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of our .NET framework versions, for instance, um, you know, you can do it. You can set up different VM boxes and things like that. But containers offer like this whole new world of isolation because in that world, you have kind of two levels. You can go really, really secure containers uh, or you can go the kind of standard containers where you have you know everything on the system and you don't really care who talks to each other and you're talking the windows containers versus hyper-v containers yeah okay exactly you know the hyper-v being the The i really want to shut off the whole world and the way i've heard that described is windows containers is for the stuff you're building and hyper-v containers are for the stuff somebody else is building that you don't trust Especially on a shared environment where you could have multiple people, I suppose. Yeah. I don't know multiple that I would host it, but in a hosting scenario, that'd be huge. Yeah. You, know, you, don't, you don't want my container somehow figuring out a way to bridge that network over to the other container, like Michelle's container, and all of a sudden I'm grabbing her data. Are you saying my container is evil? No, no. I'm saying my <laughs> container would be evil. You know. Does this Watch out. Don't talk me- about my containers like that. <laughs> So on the Azure though, on Azure though, aren't there all sorts of other things that we can use, the like service fabric and all sorts of great oh, functions yeah. and things that, oh, we, yeah. that are already isolated enough? And yeah, but I'm talking more at the company level mm-hmm. okay. where, you know, then in the talk I mentioned, you always have like that one app where it's like, don't touch that app. Yeah. Right. Because yeah. if you do, it's going to break and then the whole company goes down or something. Right. Yeah. So now I'm talking kind of more there. We can start to containerize that type of stuff. And now you're not always held back to the lowest common denominator on the server, you know, whatever that is. That's a really good example of, of you know, the value proposition of also the mixed platform play, right? Like the idea that you didn't have Java on one container and a different .NET version on another and, and Node on another and Go on another and have them own their stack, right, fully. And completely. Because we've had, been able to run .NET side by side since 4 and onward. But if you've got a .NET 2.0 app that you've lost the source code for, but your company's still dependent on it, like as an IT guy, I put that thing in a VM just to keep it safe from everybody else. But now you could, in theory. Well, now you'd have an image to roll back to physically. Right. You don't even have to go back and figure out where the source is to go rebuild. Because mm-hmm. if you have your image repository, you've got that whole history of previous image and so on. Right. But on the Windows thing, I, I think uh, another good example is people who have on-prem deployments and need predictability. Like uh, I have uh, another customer who you know, needs to deploy to on-premise. And they're just starting to look at it now that it's released, right? They're going to need a year, year and a half before I think it's mainstream for um, 
uh, shared server environments where you might deploy your software into somebody else's servers are already clustered and ready to go. Right. But the fact that it, we're going to get there is good enough for some organizations to start helping their customers get there for them so that they can ship containerized applications and know that it's going to work and be able to have that sort of Well, I think of, that's, uh, a, that's a very path. profound shift because anytime I've ever worked on software going into a facility where it's going to have some kind of DR or clustered scaling, every one of those implementations is custom. Right. Like they say you should do this, but how you do it is almost up to you hmm. because it depends on what you've got licensed. You know, it's, it's kind of complicated that way. The fact that, you know, the, for the most part, clustering is now software and you could simply specify it as part of the deployment in a, in a set of containers. That's, that's pretty profound. Like it just means it's consistent. So the whole multi-tenant idea got my head spinning. And one question that I have is, uh, and this I don't know. I honestly don't know the answer to this. If you have uh, a container, can you say on this machine, this container gets no more CPU power than X? Yeah. Because yep. obviously that's a problem. It has been a problem in the past when you... Especially with like multi-tenant, yeah. When you got multi-tenant. Yeah. You got this one, one's hogging the whole freaking yeah, server. Yeah, exactly, because some goober's in a tight loop, you know, generating a report or something. Yep. yep. Yeah. So the good thing about that is that you... Uh, cap containment and you know those constraints resource constraints but the downside is you have to predict mm -hmm. and you know going through the analysis of okay these should work pretty well with 512 you know gig of memory or, or megabytes of memory for this container. And then you got to do load testing on that because right. if you don't do the load testing before you go live, then you don't really know, like, can we, you know, burst this open to where it actually stops working? dynamically grow in no. a container? No. Well, no. I mean, if you give it a, a, a constraint, it's a constraint. And, and in some environments like Amazon, they have soft constraint and hard constraint. So you can have, uh, don't restrict me, allow me to deploy more containers to this VM, oh. but, but, but it stop me at 500, let's say. So like, give me two, 256, but stop me at 512. So right. telemetry in the early right. days of um, You have to have telemetry right out of the gate or you're completely necessary. screwed. Yeah. Yeah. You know, not to hijack this for Run As Radio, but about the time this show is going to come out, over on the Run As side, I interviewed Albert Greenberg, who's the guy who owns networking for Azure. Wow. That guy's got problems. Like, <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. That is not <laughs> a small problem. You think your problem. life is you hard. You think your life is hard. <laughs> and really cool guy. But just thinking in terms of it's actually a networking constraint when you get to that scale. They have lots of CPU and, and so forth. It's how well can you communicate on the wire. And this is the same problem we're all contending with, is just trying to figure out, you know, how well are we going to be able to balance loads between all of our machines? And what is the price when I start taking containers off of one host and onto another host and now they're communicating across the network versus communicating within the machine? Right. You know, there's, there's yeah, a consequence there's a, there. There is yeah. a, the software's going to behave differently. Account for, right. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting to think about. And this is what pre-production's about. You know, for me, testing is about making sure we regress properly. It has the same functionality. We know what's going on. QAL validates that. When we go into pre-production, it's about understanding how my application is going to fail. I will test to failure so that we have a set of signatures that tell me, this is what will tip over first, and here's how it's going to tip mm -hmm. over. Because every app can be broken. You know, I'm living proof of that. I have tipped over a lot of apps. But you, the main thing I think you need to learn from an operations perspective is that you recognize when your app's actually in trouble so that you know the symptoms enough to say, this is not a bug. This is us pressing against the limits of what we can do. 
Well, the other thing I think sometimes people do is they they try to put too much uh, emphasis on okay, I need alerts and you know I need dashboard like right away. Yep. But it's not really about that because you don't know what you're looking for until you watch the behavior. So you, you can try it out with some load tests and do some drills on things that make sense and maybe from those drills come up with a couple of things on your dashboard and types of things that you want to look for or alert on. But if you do a, like an auto scale event on something and you're wrong. Yeah. Get ready for 3,000 machines. Like, what? Yeah. <laughs> what just happened there? Uh, so you have to watch, and you should be watching a lot, right? Like when you first go live, or else you're not going to know what to what to enhance the dashboard to do. Mm. Well, it's a, it's what gauge actually matters. You know, it's a, I think cars got the same problem. RPM is very interesting, but if you're going to get a ticket if you go too fast, the speedometer is actually more important. You know, like it's what do you need to measure? Really? Yeah, depends on what country you're in. I know. <laughs> yeah, I totally agree. It's yeah, you have to test it in exa- in yeah, pre-product acceptance or just a test environment. It's everything. It's how your application stands and how it fails. We you need it. Yeah, not only business testing but load testing as well. Yeah. What are you guys can each answer this? What are the what's the highest number of containers that you've ever deployed in one button press? For me, it's not that significant. Probably eight. Pretty minimal. Okay. And that's just, be- and three of those don't even really count because I'm doing a round-robin approach with some just multiple containers in case one okay. goes down. So probably eight. That's minimal. Yeah. I did like a hundred or 50 or a hundred, but just to see what happens if it crashed. Yeah. So just, <laughs> just, just to see what happened. Did, did well, it, well, was it going to spin case, up another one or when is it going to stop? Okay, that, then, that then I changed my answer. Uh, because with Docker Swarm, I have done, okay. <laughs> but for a real one, yeah, not, yeah, okay, not that. Many. Well, and I, I don't think it's about the number of containers in a, in a button press. That's the problem. Like you're never going to deploy. It's what you do the with whole. Them, right? Yeah, it's not the size of your containers. <laughs> it's what you do with them. So you know, you you're you're going to want to deploy um, collections of things that are related, and sometimes. The idea is that each individual container absolutely can run without others there, and there's resiliency. Mm. But that doesn't mean there isn't dependency in an integration, right? Right. From UI through, I need to call this, and it needs to call that. So that dependency is there. So you're not going to hit a button and deploy 100 different services. You're going to hit a button and deploy things that collect together as, say, a number of microservices that you know, usually go together and, mm. you know, and, 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 and individually they're isolated, but together they are sometimes a unit. Most of the time you're going to deploy one at a time, right. mm-hmm. which is, that's the that's upgrade exactly path. What I do. The, the domain yeah. model dictates that you're deploying a business functionality that just got updated yeah. and the dependencies between the services once you're in production should not absolutely not be there. And if you version, then it's a new service that stitches up to the load balancer and people migrate over and then you retire the old one. Like right. there's never, it's... It's, not, it's never a dead drop conversion. Unless you're, you're just updating internals, in which case updating one should not affect the others anyway. So it shouldn't be about And that's more of a rolling update model where I, I right. put in a new one, take right. out an old one, exactly. put in a new one, take out an old one, till all those only new ones left. Yeah. What's so nice about that, it's easy. Yeah, you know, I wrote stuff like that to do that rolling update across servers in the 90s. And that got paid a lot of money for because it was really bloody hard. Well, now it's automatable. Guess what? It's hip again. Yeah. Well, it's <laughs> not, I think it's always been hip. It's just now it's become routine, 
right? This bell bottoms and down. rolling updates. There you go. Good thing that wasn't your job forever. Yeah. Bell bottoms? No, no. Or rolling updates. Rolling updates. Building yeah. a rolling update systems was really an interesting challenge, right? Because yeah. how do you how do you migrate the shopping cart? How do you keep people stuck to the new version? And how do you take the appropriate machines out of the load balancer, update them, put them back in the load balancer? We used to call it the flop. Like you got to a certain point where it's like, okay, now everybody should be running on new stuff. And then we take all the rest of the old stuff. I remember when .NET first came out, one of the most amazing things was that you could just copy and assembly a new version over an old version in ASP.NET, and it would just magically work. And we were all like, whoa, that's amazing. Especially if you used to do COM. Yeah, Yeah, that's right. (laughs) That required a reboot. Exactly. (laughs) Everybody loved that. What was that error you used to get? You do a RegServe 32 and there'd be some like version compatibility issue. I don't remember what it was, but oh, I hated that error. Uh, Welcome to DLL Hell Stories. Nice. (laughs) Michelle, we would be remiss if talking about containers, we didn't bring up Service Fabric. So uh, I know that you've done a lot of that and still do. And, you know, what's the state of service fabric these days? The, the platform as a service offering. Yeah, I mean, well, it's not really platform as a service hmm. because it's still a cluster that you manage the nodes for. It's still IaaS underneath. Okay. So it is uh, maybe a more holistic look at the microservices story in the sense that you now have a project management story around it. You're in Visual Studio. We build applications. Applications have services. I think, you know, it's it, it's very nice in that it's all together. So when you think about Docker, my, my experience is I'm developing over here. And then I'm building and I'm automating the build probably and producing images from that check-in, for example. And... And, and these services are sort of, you know, they're in their own repositories and have their own image repositories. And, and you have to do a lot of DevOps around, you know, collecting those things and post individual testing, how do you do integration testing? Mm-hmm. And that usually means, of course, the strategy around deployment to the test environments and the real sort of composition, if you will. Um, when we do service fabric, we still have the same problem, but they make it feel easier because you have this application and you can publish and all the services can just deploy and you know I get my dashboard right there because it's already built in so it's like they've co-located the sort of uh, experience of development through to deployment and orchestration as opposed to decoupling it where docker is sort of over here and I choose whatever platform I want over there whether it's DCOS or docker data center or Amazon or Azure or this or that Right. So it's just, it's kind of all together. The downside is it doesn't feel as microservice-y unless you make it so. And and that's uh, been a struggle for customers, like where they have different distributed teams in different places like India or here or there, and, and they want someone to work on their service. Well, they can't just have this one big project anymore, like... Uh, 95 projects in one solution kind of thing, which nobody has ever done, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's, I mean, it's easy when you're just like one team, like, oh, let's build. And wow, that's taking a while, but at least it's all here. I know my reference dependencies, right? Yeah. Wow, I never thought of it that way. So yeah, you, the, the granularity that you get with containers makes it easier to distribute the work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, the, you can do it with Service Fabric and, and with the tools in Visual Studio. It's just we don't tend to think that way as Visual Studio developers. So it's a it's a it's a mindset change, right? You you have to think differently. So typically, you have a Service Fabric person that does everything. Yeah, Maybe. I mean, you need you need governance, I guess. Yeah, governance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. Do you feel like the tooling's up to snuff yet for, for dealing with containers? Or are we still waiting for some more revisions to Studio to make this easier? Well, why would we want Visual Studio for containers? I'm not saying we want Visual Studio for containers. I'm looking for good tooling. There, yeah. is, there is a preview for Docker, so you yeah. can download the preview of Visual Studio. I've tested it. It works. There's still some small bugs, but it works. You can just press play, and it builds your container, your code into it. And, and it's a corollary here, which is all of you figured out how to work with containers in Linux. Because your right. early Docker container adopters. It was only Linux, yeah. Right, because there was only Linux. And only now can we start talking about doing containers living solely in Windows, which I think for a non-trivial chunk of our audience is the way they want to think. They're not, their IT hasn't brought Linux into the office yet. They don't want to go that way. And so they're going to look to Studio and Server 2016 to see what is the container solution. And I got the sense that we're not actually ready. It's early. Uh, so Steve uh, Lasker, am I saying his name? Yep. Right, Steve. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're, the cool thing is they're like really open to, I had a Skype call with someone from the team, uh, I don't know, a couple of weeks ago. And because I was, well, I was actually about to give a talk and I couldn't get something to work. So <laughs> desperate times call for desperate measures. As you do. And uh, anyway, they're really like open though. I, I love how open they are to feedback on it. Um, because uh, one of the guys I was talking with was like, well, what do you like about this? What don't you? And so I gave my opinion and they're like, hey, that's, you know, that's great feedback. Let me talk with the team. And so I, I really like how open they are. And the other, the, so the tooling to answer your question, in my opinion, yeah, they're still working on it. It's, it's preview, as mentioned. What is really cool, though, is if you go to the uh, docs.microsoft.com site, um, one of my buddies, Shane Boyer, he's kind of working solely on a lot of the cross-platform stuff. He's doing the Docker articles. And I think all the stuff that probably a lot of the folks on some of those teams are like, uh, we haven't touched that in ever. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> and so he's doing a really good, it's not just Shane, there's other people, but uh, they're doing a really good job on, even if you don't want to use you know, Linux, on the docs for it, so that at least if the tooling doesn't do everything you want now, yeah. you'll have a guide. You know, There's a very significant push inside of Microsoft to get the docs up to date. Like our friend Bill Wagner is working hard on the C Sharp yeah, docs, that's right? right? Like that's right. There's a bunch of really smart people that are trying to make the docs right, which, because we got way behind. Yeah, they come from a long way back. It's yeah, it, it does feel like we're still just trying to get organized. We've done a lot of stuff now. We're, we're finding a place to try and get organized and go, okay, let me try and explain this to you in a coherent way. Because it just seems like bits and pieces that have been built. We not really have a plan. Uh, and really know what the whole thing looks like. Now they seem to have more of a plan. That's the good news. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I think. Well, and a part of me also wonders if, you know, as, as cloud becomes more and more prevalent, like how you run your containers is going to get less and less important. It's just going to be a service in the cloud. And that's where the card ran out of space. Oh, well, I think it was a good show as is, don't you? Yeah, and I'm happy to do these panels about where containers are at because I think it's going to be really core to the way we build software going forward. I don't think the tooling's quite there yet, but it's nice to have folks like Dan and Michelle and Rick who are experimenting and trying to make this stuff work right now, and we can check in with them right. and get some confidence of what's working and what isn't. The best part is you can go back through the archives for you know to look at these container panels, which we do on a regular basis, and at different points in time, there are different issues that get resolved and we have new issues. So it's kind of a, a nice chronology to go through and do a show like this every once in a while. In fact, if you haven't used our tagging service in the website, we now have a tag called containers. So you can literally see where we first started talking about them with like Brad Abrams way back 
in the early thousands through to today so yeah. that you can see there is a story arc happening here about containers becoming more and more mainstream for the .NET developer. Yeah. And uh, just, it, we can't end this show without saying Dev Intersection in Holland was just a blast. So Such a great audience. We had a great time with them. Uh, really fun to shake some hands and visit some folks. They all stayed for our panel discussion. We were you know, literally holding them from beer. From there, we all <laughs> went down to the floor and had drinks and bitterballin' and uh, and right. had a chance to visit with everybody. And so. bitterballin', you heard me say that joke in the beginning, that this is a deep-fried goo. Yeah. I don't know what else to call it. A gravy ball. It's yeah, a gravy ball. It's a gravy ball. <laughs> <laughs> it's like really thick gravy, deep-fried, and bread yep. and deep-fried. It's the perfect pub food. It's awesome. Well, for some people. <laughs> <laughs> all right. We'll see you next time on... .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Plop Studios a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a...